Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. On this episode, I'm joined by Jesse Meyerson as my guest co-host. Jesse is a writer and organizer in New York City. And our guest is Matt Bruning, a writer who focuses on poverty, inequality, and welfare systems. And we'll be discussing his recent article, which he published at Medium, which is called Liberals and Diversity. And it's a response to a Zach Bochum piece at Vox. And basically, Brunig argues that liberals are making an argument that conservatives usually make, which is that diversity is inconsistent with economic justice. Brunig paraphrases Zach Bochum's argument thusly. What follows from this particular argument is pretty clear. You can have diversity or you can have economic justice, but you can't have both. Traditionally, this has been the arch-conservative position. It is conservatives who say that we cannot mix different kinds of people, lest we increase social distrust, disharmony, and distance. It is conservatives who say that we need to monitor diversity levels in immigration to ensure that the immigrant share of the population does not get too high and to ensure that the immigrants who do come in are aggressively assimilated so as to erase the differences they initially bring with them. Not keeping diversity down and different groups separated from one another, conservatives maintain, will destabilize society, turn politics into a dangerous racialized contest for political power, and immiserate people in all sorts of subtle and not so subtle ways. And it's not just white conservatives who say this either. The black nationalist separatist movements also hold these views. More and more, it seems like liberals in the discourse agree with this basic conservative assessment of how diversity affects society. But despite that underlying agreement, they somewhat bizarrely resist the conservative conclusion. Despite telling you that they think increasing diversity will result in children going hungry, as well as the mass incarceration and widespread discrimination of minority groups, they nonetheless support it. If liberals are going to adopt a conservative view on how diversity operates in society, then they really do need to also work out what they think the implication of it is. Conservatives are very clear. Diversity has all these problems, and so it should be restricted. But the liberal view, that diversity has all these problems, and yet it should be expanded without restraint, is just incoherent on its face. As always, we encourage you to become Patreon members and to get extra access and bonus content from our interviews and from our show. So for instance, this week you will get a bonus interview that I did with Nando Villa, a producer and journalist and video maker at Fusion. We get into the Trump tax release controversy and Maddowgate. I'm just going to call it Maddowgate. And we also talk about Bernie Sanders Town Hall in Kentucky with coal miners. So if you miss that, you'll def- you will definitely want to hear this because we give you some snippets of that. You'll also get some bonus content from another discussion I had with Titi Bhattacharya about the women's strike. And we will also bring you some of the speeches from the women's strike. So again, totally worth it. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And make sure that you sign up and become a member. And we, we have an exciting announcement, which is that our next live show will be April 12th at the Brooklyn Commons at 388 Atlantic Avenue with guest Matt Carp, who is a historian at Princeton and also writes at Jacobin and is the author of the book, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. Please write and review us on iTunes. Thanks. See you next week. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper, and if it's a Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI, you can always find the Katie Helper Show. I'm here, as always, with Reggie, the Engineer-in-Chief, the EIC. Hey, Katie. Hey, Reggie. How's it going? Oh, it's a Wednesday. It's a Wednesday. Reggie loves Wednesdays. By the way, pause. I'm also here with a guest co-host, Jesse Meyerson, who's, who's doing... Reggie, what is my pet peeve? What does everyone do on the show? 
what laugh? Not laugh. They Not laugh, laugh but they don't the laugh into the mic. Exactly. Uh, Should I, I was just... laughing silently. I know. That's what I'm saying. And then people don't witness it. I'm gonna have to start videotaping. I have one that I videotaped. Watch. I'm gonna now laugh the way I was laughing before, but this time into the microphone. Ready? Good. Yeah. Oh, he's laughing silently, guys, you but visibly I mean? he's shaking. But we know he doesn't laugh that way because we've heard him at one of the live <laughs> shows. He was laughing really loudly. <laughs> and Jesse Meyerson is a writer and organizer, and we're really excited to have him. Gabe was unavailable today, but Jesse is a gem in himself, so it's not like second pickings or whatever. Um, and we're going to be talking to Matt Brunig, who is a... A labor lawyer and a writer and an economist and just a really smart guy uh, about this piece that he just wrote, which basically calls out the unbearable hypocrisy and incoherence of the liberal, the liberati, the liberal, what we call them, the liberal class. That sounds fine. Yeah. And he focuses on poverty, inequality, and welfare systems. So that's a really good person to be talking to. Jesse, can I break down the fourth wall, which I do usually within the first five minutes anyway, and ask you to pass me a tissue, please? It'd be my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Sorry. I assume you don't want this used one here no. in front of the box. No. I mean, I'm an environmentalist, but not that bad. Um, or that good. So, okay, I'm going to have to blow <laughs> my nose. I'm going to turn away from the mic. Can you talk about uh, something that's on your mind? We're going to do a new segment. Thing that makes you angry, thing that makes you feel inspired. Okay, well, I, the both of them are the same thing for me, and it's your earrings, which feature um, the Hindu god Ganesha, the, the god of uh, of luck, um, the elephant-headed god, and it makes me inspired because you know any symbol of luck from around the world is um, is uh, you know auspicious as we go into this um, this recording, and also it makes me upset because it's terrible cultural appropriation. I was hoping you were going to say that. I kind of wasn't because I wanted to be able to put that tag Sorry. on. But you are you are you are you outwoke me. <laughs> Um, but what if it was I a gift from someone? You woke me up. We're woke at the wheel, right, Reggie? Uh, yeah, both of you are woke. No, it's our show. Woke? Remember, we said we were woke at the wheel. Oh, woke at the wheel. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, oh my God, you thought I was fun turning. Fun drive. To... I thought yeah, it was fun drive for <laughs> but so long. But we're always long. woke. I, just, uh, I see. Yeah, no, but we're yeah. always woke at the wheel. At the wheel. Remember, we said um, waddle, waddle. Whoa, waddle. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Waddle. waddle. So laugh into the mic think. and waddle. Those are both of our. Our uh, Logan, uh, slogans. Logan. Logan's, Logan's kind of good. Yeah. I saw Logan How actually was it? last night. It was extremely grim and violent and much better than I was expecting. Really? And that's oh, yeah. the new X Men? It is. Movie? Anyone here see Get Out? I did. Did you I did, see it? I, I didn't oh my see God. Get Out. Yeah, I heard a lot of good things. I about loved Get it. Out. Extraordinary. I loved it. I think that um, every black woman in a relationship with a black man needs to take him to see that. Every black woman? Mm hmm. Why do you think that? <laughs> because it's a cautionary tale. About not letting black men date white women? Is that what you're saying? No, about, look, I mean, I say this and I'm white and I've dated black men, so it makes me a hypocrite. And I'm not going to give away the ending, but... I'm already really uncomfortable. Anyway, Are you? keep going. I'm just saying that as a, I think there's a problem, and I'm sure, and I know a lot of black women think it's a problem, that there is a, what, how do you call this, a demographic imbalance of black men dating non-black women? Oh come on! Am I? Am I? There, there, there's such a. There there's such a, a thing, thing. There's such right? A thing. Okay. Such a thing is spoken of. I can't speak right. empirically. Well, we could look it up. Sure. But I, I know from online dating stuff. I mean, I don't know this. I don't <laughs> pretend to be either a male, Asian, or black female. But I know from reading articles about this that like there are certain people who are more or less. It's really terrible. I mean, I'm not condoning this. You know what? This started out as a casual joke, and all I'm gonna say <laughs> is, I think that there's certain. Um, you know, I. I Look, I, I'm just going to say that 
Um, I think interracial relationships are great. They're problematic, but so are intra-racial relationships. No one talks about that. Why is that not problematic? I think what's problematic is... Am I talking about this? Uh, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it's. I'm not going to say that You're you've made it. me especially comfortable right. in this That's moment. That's what I try but, to do, pushing um, limits, pushing I, boundaries. I think uh, conceiving of people as being of, in different racial categories and that being an, uh, an important factor of people's uh, relationships is... It's a no-no. Kind of, well... It's a, it's people do it. I just, right. it, you uh, don't. So, like, I, when you're dating someone, you don't even know what their ethnic background is. I don't even see is. race. Right. No, right. I'm just, I'm kidding. Obviously, like, ethnic background is an important thing because it informs the culture of the person and their well, identity like, and their family or, and stuff right. like that. Or but, if you're a black man, it may inform the way you can walk down the street without being killed. Not to, for put, instance, not to be like overly, the, you know, the way yeah. that we are put in racial categories sure, is extremely yes, problematic. Of course. I'm not saying that ha having that be a litmus test for who you should and shouldn't fall no, in love with. No, of course it's not. Of course it's not. Um, I'll get into this another time. I'll have to have a, a, a black uh, male or female guest on the show so I can say this stuff and like make them uncomfortable. Well, no, they can keep, keep they'll put me in line and tell me what I can I and can't say. Yeah, I'm in no position. No, I, it's almost like you're colonizing the space. It is. A, oh, a little I just bit like out problematized Jesse. Okay. Anyway, I'm not going to give it away. Um, I just think it's a, <laughs> Reggie's I just think, shaking his head. I just think it's a great home. movie. Um, <laughs> there's nothing wrong. Again, I don't. There's he's nothing in, wrong with it. He's in Patrick Stewart facepalm gif mode. He is. But you're going to tell me. Look, it's there, there's not some issue where look Sidney Poitier, Cuba Gooding Jr. Right. Um, who else? Wesley Snipes. Wesley. Are uh, we listing black men? Uh, who, yeah, who date? Uh, who are married to or date white women? Who right. else? Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte. Right. Uh, Tiger Woods, although he's you know. Yeah. Eh. O.J. Simpson, uh, well, not going to pretend that that's the case study that we should turn to at all. I'm just saying, like, there's not. Uh, what What about the other way around, though? Uh, there's some, but like Serena Williams. She has a white partner. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Serena Williams. Right. Um, let me see. Uh, it's so uh, hard for us because we're color I forgot. I forgot the. Oh man, I'm blanking on the woman. The woman that. Um, exactly. She was in a uh, Avatar. She Zoe was Saldana. In, Zoe Saldana, right. She is with the white dude. Yes. Got it, okay. Yes. So there's some. In Avatar, even. Maybe that's where Yeah, that's true, too. Oh, yeah. and that's because yeah, they were blue. True. They were blue. Well, they were all blue. Down, that yeah. broke it down. Yeah, yeah they were like this. They were like, we're colorblind. Exactly. We're, everything's blue in this world. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, I, I know it's uncomfortable to talk about, but I feel like it is a thing. And apparently, from dating site data, the, the least sought after people are... Statistically speaking, are Asian men and African American women? That's I've read hmm. that. So, and that's a problem. You know, there, there's been studies. Yeah. Of uh, there's been discussions about that. I mean, I think the thing is, is that it's part of the larger, part of the larger context of the fact that there has never really been a discussion about the the differences and the issues of these things. I mean, it, this is the covert stuff that we don't talk about that should right. be out in the surface. I will, the, I will only note right. that Jordan Peele, the writer and director oh my God, of is Get married Out, to is married to a white woman. Chelsea Peretti. Right. And she's uh, dark hair, light eyes, and thin, right. as is the actress who plays, I'm just saying, it must the be actress, Baron. Allison Williams, who I learned by Googling her after the show, the movie, is the daughter of, of Brian Williams. Williams. You didn't know that? Yeah. I did not and know that. And she's about 17,000 Katie's like, I am up on all of the newscasters I didn't know family. that until recently, actually, but she's um, relatively recently. Well, but she's like a thousand times more charismatic. I mean, that guy is like, I'd rather listen to Rush Limbaugh, I think, than he, Brian He knows Williams. his way around a joke, I'll tell you that much. I mean, around it, as in avoiding it. <laughs> like, doesn't goes 
nowhere near it. When he had to, he had to cover Prince's death. I don't know why. Everyone must have been. Now he's doing the the Patrick Stewart thing again. Everyone must have been off or sick or something. So he covered Prince's death, and literally all he kept saying was. You know, much like, he knows nothing about him. So he's like, much like um, another person from Minneapolis who also marched to the beat of his own drum. I'm speaking, of course, of Bob Dylan. Like, that was the only thing he had to say about Prince, was that he's from Minneapolis. And an enigma, like Bob Dylan. That was his hot take. Again, I'm not going to say that he's uh, perhaps a very knowledgeable music commentator, but when he's been in a position to be funny, like on, say, 30 Rock... Okay, I'll watch it. I'll watch it. We're going to have to revisit this. Um, Do a a recount, a revote. So, Jesse, you work with the nurses union. Indeed. And can you tell us a little bit about what they're up to? And they, I feel like they've really, um, they're kind of like Frederick Douglass. They're doing great work. Yeah, tremendous job. Tremendous job. Um, But they actually, what they share is that they, uh, it's the opposite of Frederick Douglass, I guess, but, well, just like Frederick Douglass seemed to appear (laughs) out of nowhere for Trump, the nurses... (laughs) Not out of nowhere, but I feel like I hear that about them all the time, and I didn't before. Uh-huh. What, what is it that brought well, you guys into the national spotlight? I, I don't know about uh, as far as the National Nurses Union goes, but as far as our union goes, New York State Nurses Association, it, it's sort of like the Chicago Teachers Union of the East in the way that um, a few years ago, or actually around the same time, late 2010, early 2011, a di- for, for like 50 years it had been run by hospital management. It was barely a union. And this dissident left-wing caucus took over a few years back um, and brought in all new leadership, including the the director, Jill Farilla, who was previously at the California State Nurses Association, um, and are trying to remake the union in a much more kind of like democratic, egalitarian way. And since then, uh, Nisna has been um, sort of anchoring the push for a single-payer bill in New York State, which has passed the Assembly. It's caught up in the Senate because the Senate's a catastrophe, um, it, thanks in no small part to our intrepid governor, Mr. Andrew Cuomo, the Honorable, as we're enjoined to call him. Um, and so it's it's stalled in the Senate at the moment, but um, power is growing for it on the ground. And, of course, in the wake of the announcement of the Republican uh, proposed uh, replacement to the ACA, um, there is a, a sort of, it seems to me, an uptick in interest in uh, single payer. And that, that probably puts some uh, wind in its sails. I, I don't know if you watched the... Um, the All in America Town oh, Hall yeah. with uh, I, of course. Chris Hayes and Bernie Sanders in, yeah. in uh, West Virginia, but um, a man uh, from West Virginia said, "Everybody in this room needs free health care," and there was raucous applause after right. it. Uh, these are supposed to be people who are um, uh, stalwarts against uh, economic. They're and, Neanderthals, and, and it's actually race. Every time a white person appeals to a white person on a class level and an anti-racist level, they are actually. Um, I don't know, uh, like making it impossible for Sheryl Sandberg, another Sheryl Sandberg. Somehow they're racist and sexist. I don't really get it. I think that the one of the good ways to kind of move, push back against racism is when you talk to poor people and tell them not to blame um, marginalized communities. And, and get them behind a program such as single payer, which yeah. would disproportionately um, uplift the poorest people, which, of course, women are poorer than men and black people are poorer than white and yeah. immigrants are poorer right. than U.S. born and we- trans and queer are poorer right. than cis and straight. It, it, it seems to me that a single payer plan, if you can get poor and working class white people behind it, is precisely the best way that they could contribute to an anti-racist future. Right. But somehow... 
Yeah. I mean, okay, I'm such a broken record, but and maybe it's because I grew up in a lefty house, but I don't think so. I don't think you have to be a Marxist to get that you talk to poor white people and you tell them that the banks are the enemy or this 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 inequality is the enemy as opposed to other people that they have been tempted to scapegoat and maybe have scapegoated by Donald Trump. Like, since when is that a, a bad move? I don't get it. Well, it wasn't a bad move, surely, when Dr. King was doing it or when right. Fred Hampton was doing it or Shirley Chisholm was doing it right. or Jesse Jackson was doing right. it or Carol Mosley Brown. I mean, like, it's uh, obviously economic justice has been a cornerstone of uh, much of the black rights movement for in the since Frederick Douglass, actually, because right. obviously black people are kept poor as a deliberate attempt at, at upkeeping white supremacy. Right. You know, it's so interesting because I just remembered in a, uh, the diary, what is it? The, um, the Frederick, diary of Anne Frank? No. Oh. Frederick Douglass. Oh, the narrative of the life of a slave. Thank you. Oh. Um, in that, you know, it's so interesting because people love joking, um, about how, oh, free, free tuition is going to kill racism. Free breaking up the banks is going to end racism. And we talked about this as if he's saying that. But also, Frederick Douglass, I just remembered when I read his book in high school, there's this passage where he, his slave owner, the, the, the female slave owner, um, I guess they used to call it like mistress, but that's such a weird romanticized. Anyway, the, slave the wife slave owner is teaching him how to read. And the male, the husband slave owner, sees that she's doing that and forbids it and I think beats him, which is, I mean, hardly a rare thing because he was his slave, right? Sure. So I'm not going to pretend that that was... Um, an anomaly, but um, it just reminded me when you said that. I mean, that is it's keeping black people poor. A big part of that has been was illiteracy, right? Yeah, and today it's it's bad. You know, um, what would you say? Yeah, systemic, systemic deprivation, deprivation. Of, of black communities of educational resources. Right, exactly, and charter schools or whatever, so yeah. that you have this talented tenth yeah, thing right, and don't right. actually have to deal with the public school system. Um, okay, well. Speaking of which, I think we should, you know, I feel like this is a very apropos discussion to bring in Matt Bruning for. Well, he just wrote a piece yes. uh, on Medium, which is where he mainly publishes now, um, taking on a, a piece that was, appeared in Vox by Zach Beecham, uh, no, notable at this um, for his confusion about whether or not a bridge actually existed between Gaza and the West Bank. Oh, I didn't know this. Oh, he claimed that there was one and then um, informed that actually there was not one, uh, had to issue one of Vox's hilarious corrections. Of course, they're, they issue tons of corrections because they're bad, but right. um, he, he had to confess that actually Maybe he, he meant like that. it was an aspirational bridge. bridge that he's hoping to a build. A spiritual yeah. bridge. Well, so anyway, um, Zach wrote a piece uh, claiming that... Um, Similar to what we're talking about, that um, countries with that um, a drive toward econo that egalitarian economics is not concomitant with a drive toward um, racial equality or diversity, right. and that um, if we were to follow the and that actually countries that have more uh, economic equality, like such as Northern European countries, are even more susceptible to the sorts of um, uh, vitriolic racism that is embodied in this country by Donald Trump and his associates. Though uh, we can say today that Geert Wilders, the Donald Trump of the Netherlands, has been roundly defeated, uh, notwithstanding that country's uh, greater degree of economic equality. Yay. Yay! Oh, I should have had my friend Ert call in. He's, he's a even, Dutchman. I don't even know what um, that means. Yeah, Do you uh, need another tissue? It's not no, like no, you no. Need another tissue. no, no, no. Uh, it's my natural friend Drescher voice. Um, <laughs> is Matt here? Yes. Hi, Matt. Here. Hi, Matt. Hi. How are you? Doing well. How are you guys? Good. Splendid. Good to have you on the phone. 
Yeah, no, none of that telegramming that we used to do back yeah. in the day. <laughs> yeah, back back in the day when it, on the radio it just sounded like, and people were like, wow, Matt is so interesting. So engaging, yeah. But Matt, this is the first time we've had you on the show. We're very excited. I'm a big fan of your work. And again, as we said, Matt is a Matt Brunig is a writer, and his focuses are poverty, inequality, and welfare systems. So you basically focus on exactly the things that people like to be totally wrong about in the mainstream media, and it's kind of astonishing. Um, Jesse and I were talking about the the way that um, people see the meeting, the town hall that they did with Chris Hayes and Bernie Sanders. You know, people are are, are very critical of that because. It was very apparently racist of Bernie Sanders to talk to these people, although I have to say there was, of course, a black woman on the stage. But these people who call Sanders racist are so woke they didn't realize because they're colorblind. Mm. I'm sure that's what it was. That's got to be it. That has to be it. But um, I I thought that there – I'm going to ask you, of course, about your really good piece, but I just thought this was a good jumping off point. Um, I don't know if you guys saw it. This tweet to me kind of just symbolized everything. That's wrong with the liberal hot take um, on what Sanders is doing. And that is this woman who said, wait, what is her name? Her name is Bitchiology. I can say that right because it's not um, you just have. a slur. Okay. Um, she says, this is her summary the morning after uh, the town hall. When are white people, f- quote, okay, quote, when are white people finally going to have their day, end quote, the white West Virginian male asked, quote, soon, end quote, Bernie said, quote soon end quote here let's do it back and forth okay all right so um i'll be i'll be the 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 coal miner and you'll be bernie so okay. you say soon soon okay Got it, yeah when okay i'm a pretend i'm a male when as a white virginia west virginia male i would like to know when are white people finally going to have their day soon soon very good okay. how did i do that was good. That was good. Soon. Very soon. soon. Oh, you're better. You should have just I done that. Yeah, places. sorry. Um, did, you, did you watch that, Matt? Yeah. I saw the tweet as well. Okay, um, nice. I mean, I saw, <laughs> it's the premise that white males in West Virginia have a have a good go of it, because I, I feel like, you know, of, of all the things that they benefit from, we wouldn't say that they're, you know, on the upper crust of white men in the country. Yeah, they're literally below the crust of the uh, of the, the, the of the removed mountains. Yeah, the mountains at least, right? Yeah. They're underground. I mean, you kind of can't get a better. Um... They're subaltern. Yes, exactly. Right, exactly. These people should be excited about that because they're <laughs> pretending to be intersectional, which they're not. Obviously, they're intersectional except on race and class. <laughs> Except on class. Um, yeah. So Zach, Zach Beecham of Vox uh, wrote a piece that you wrote a takedown of that um, follows sort of in this premise, which is to say that if you appealed to, um, say, poor white West Virginians um, interest in like getting, uh, you know, quality health care or dignified housing or, you know, um, livable wages or things like that, um, that necessarily that sort of thing uh, cuts against a kind of um, – politics that encourages uh, uh, multiculturalism and diversity and and harmony between people of different identities. Um, And and you wrote a piece kind of taking that on. What what was your read on on his piece and and what he got wrong? Well, my, um, I mean, his piece was a jumping off point for a trend that I've seen since the election has, you know, ended. Uh, We've had I've seen a lot of liberal takes on Twitter and in some written pieces that have really like taken on this idea that 
or adopted this idea, which I used to would have associated with conservatives, that, well, a diverse society, racial diversity really cuts against the ability to do good economic policy. Um, and as someone who focuses on welfare systems, that's just sort of like a constant thing that comes up from conservatives who want to oppose like Nordic type systems because they say, well, we can't do them here because you know we're not nearly as homogenous as they are. And the, the nut of my piece is really just saying, if you've adopted the conservative opinion of what diversity does, if you think diversity really does degrade social trust, increase social distance, make it harder to put in place good economic um, systems, then what is the upshot of that for you? Because right. conservatives have a very clear upshot, which is we need to cut down diversity. But you've sort of adopted this conservative view, it seems to me, because you want to punch left without thinking about the full implications of it, which is that, well, I guess we need to reduce diversity, or what do we do? Like, if diversity is causing people to die because they don't have health insurance, like, there's at least something you have to think about. Um, well, wouldn't they just say, oh, it's really easy. Diversity and economic justice don't go hand in hand, which is, first of all, a lie, and we'll get into that, and you, I'll quote your piece because you break that down very nicely. But it seems like that's a great way to say, okay, let's just do diversity yeah, and forget about the economic, the economic justice. justice. Exactly. Right. That would be, that has been in some ways a libertarian view is, well, especially when it comes to immigration is, let's kind of cut benefits. Let's allow inequality to get really big because then people won't care as much about immigration because we won't have to worry about, you know, People thinking like, well, if immigrants come in, we'll have to pay for their kids to go to school. You know, if if no poor people can go to school, then you won't, that's not even something you have to worry about anymore. Like that, that is really where it does tend to go mm. is just to sacrifice the economic side of things in order to accommodate diversity so that, you know, uh, white the white majority doesn't worry about uh, where their their money is going in quotes. Um so that tends to be where it goes, and, and that's that has been the third-way position. It's, it's sort of weird in the primary because of kind of Clinton's cynical campaign about how to beat Bernie. Everything flipped, where the center-left somehow became the the party that really loved diversity and identity and immigration and that sort of thing, when before that would have been associated with the left. Right. The center-left would have been the party being like, oh, we need to be careful on this. We need to not push too hard on gay marriage. We need to push, not push too hard on, you know, confronting people with racism. We need to be careful on that. Um, and that's where they're slowly talking themselves back into after the election. But I thought it was, I mean, to me it seems like um, it's a way for them to just say, to kind of link um, social, econo to link economic justice with racism to make it seem like a privilege thing and something that's antithetical to racial justice. Um, I mean, that's, I, I guess I, I, that's, I see, that's where I see the usefulness is for them. I don't even think they're saying like, let's not pursue diversity. I don't even think they're, I, I just think it's a way for them to say, to stigmatize economic justice as something that's um, antithetical to diversity. Yeah, I think the, I mean, I think the real upshot, the real like motivated part of it is that they're basically saying the left needs to chill out and stop pushing this kind of stuff. Like that's really what they want you to ultimately conclude is like Clintonism forever is the only, only thing we can attempt, right. even though it didn't work. And right, um, because you end your piece. So I, I just, can I quote some parts of your piece so listeners get a, a sense of it? 
Um, yep. So you, this piece, which everyone should read, it's at me. You can read it on Medium, and it's called "Liberals and Diversity." And you say um, you you're responding to a piece at Vox about how diversity is bad for economic justice. You write, normally I would ignore a piece like this, but it's part of a broader trend I've spotted within the liberal think sphere after Trump that is worth discussing. Why liberals might be interested in this story after Trump is pretty obvious. The narrative that has emerged from Trump's win is that nobody could have beaten the stupendous white lash that elected him. Clinton couldn't do it. Bernie couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. This exempts Democrats from any criticism of the party's support of Clinton over Sanders. The problem with blaming the win of Trump on angry whites is that white people did not support Trump in any larger numbers than they usually support Republicans. The white share of the electorate was smaller in 2016 than it was in 2012, and Trump got a smaller share of the white vote than Romney in 2012. The only racial groups Trump did better with than Romney, according to the exit poll, were blacks and Latinos. That's incredible, first of all. Well, it just suggests to me that um, Hillary Clinton wasn't as good a candidate in those communities as Barack Obama, and perhaps that her oh, of um, course, which a, her know. abuela and um, hot sauce appeals were not. But as the Mary J. Blige one it won me was, over. I definitely thought that was a good one. Um, and then you say, um, and then okay, then you quote, is it Beauchamp or Beauchamp? I don't know. How to Beecham, say it. Beecham, Beecham, really? Well, oh. that's what it says in his little bio. Oh, in Vox. Little bio. It's pronounced Beecham. Here's what he says that I find like is absolutely not at all supported by the evidence, yet is constantly trotted out as if it's not at all controversial. He says, um, the upshot, and this is Zach, not you, the upshot is that a significant shift to the left on economic policy issues might fail to attract white Trump supporters, even in the working class. It could even plausibly hurt the Democrats politically by reminding whites just how little they want their dollars to go to, quote, unquote, those people, end quote. One can only imagine what Trump would tweet. Okay. I don't understand, like, why would that happen if you're literally emphasizing the shared economic exploitation that transcends race and you're showing all these people, these white people, that the enemy are the banks and inequality, not their black brothers and sisters or Latino brothers and sisters or LGBTQ or Muslim. Like, I don't, where is this thesis? Does he actually believe this or is this all part of a great liberal lie? Well, let, the, let me problematize this a little okay. bit by pointing out that there is, um, there have been studies done that show that the greatest predictor of <clears throat> lack of welfare spending in a state, in a given state in the United States is the um, presence of black people. Um, so you notice that like where weed is legalized is like, you know, Colorado sure, and sure. Washington is all white states and there's a basic income in Alaska, which is all white. And there's a public bank in North Dakota, which is all white. And so it seems like at least in the states like um, uh, New York, for instance, um, white people uh which is to say, specific, what, the, the way that I want to problematize this is bringing in the class element, which is to say that white people, that suburban kind of petty bourgeois white people who have, you know, a house and a 401k and stuff, that they're very reluctant to spend on public programs uh, because that, I think because this does have this effect of like, well, we would be subsidizing lazy black people and, you know, um, uh, lazy immigrants and stuff like that. So I, I wonder if, if that, um, if, um, Matt, if that kind of the, that fact, which uh, I know you're aware of, and I know you're aware of the, the mm -hmm. Harvard study that that um, talks about this, if that is um, if that problematizes your thesis at all, or how you reconcile that with the claim that you're making. Well, the the one stat that you cited does have a few confounding elements to it. Um, namely, it's first off, it's when they're talking about welfare, they're only talking about TANF, so we're not talking about other kinds of programs. TANF is yeah. Can you tell, and it is uh, temporary assistance for needy families. It's like 
the conventional welfare program for um, poor mothers with children um, replaced aid to families with dependent children after welfare reform. And um, brought to you by the Clintons. Yes, <laughs> and you know the the the, the states that. The states that have the highest percentage of black people in them are also the poorest states in the country. So there are some reasons why poorer states might, for budgetary reasons, resist, you know, uh, spending more money on that. Um, but putting that aside, I, I, I agree generally that there are like racial resentments that can come up. There are non-racial resentments that come up. And con- there was a great piece that Sarah Cliff did at Vox. Uh, in Kentucky, where, which is in, in some of these all-white counties where they would talk to people and they'd be like, you know, uh, I don't really like Obamacare that much because I make $25,000 a year and I'm on this exchange plan and I have to pay $10,000 a year in deductibles, which basically means I don't have any insurance. But my neighbor, who's a white guy, he's only making $10,000 a year. He gets Medicaid. He gets to go to the doctor. It's awesome. And, and these are like, two white really people. This is a that. white person talking about another white person. Right, yeah, it was all white counties right. that, that she went to. Um, and so you see there is, like, envy or bitterness or concern that comes up with these sorts of benefits, but the enviousness is amplified by the kind of means testing yeah, exactly. that center-left people really push. Like, people don't – if it's a means-tested benefit, it's a lot easier to be like, well, I pay taxes, and it goes to quote-unquote right. yeah, those right. people. So mean, Instead of I pay taxes and we all get health care, that's great. Like you know, I, And just so listeners know, means-tested means means-tested as opposed to universal programs, right? So you have to qualify for them. Yeah, it's, it's targeted only targeted, at right. people instead of at everyone. Right, which is why when you brought that thing up, Jesse, I think that it only like strengthens Matt's point because it's like, duh, this is why we have to have universal programs because it doesn't stigmatize people, but also because – Forget, like, even if you don't care about that, if you just care, and you have these people, um, I won't name names for now, but these people who make this interesting argument that it's somehow racist or classist, actually, they don't care about class. Well, yeah, they, they pretend to care about it. It's racist and classist to have a program that benefits everyone because somehow, even when they're, like, talking about economic justice, they manage to peddle to push the freeloader narrative. I love it. Uh, because you have ri- rich freeloaders who don't deserve this stuff benefiting from it. As if, you know, I'm sure a low-income person is really upset when when he or she gets to receive benefits that everyone gets because they feel like they want to stand out. Anyway, tangent and sarcasm aside, um, clearly when a program is universal, it has more support and it's less vulnerable to getting cut, right? That's like we don't say no one, there was no Newt Gingrich wasn't talking about Social Security queens, right? He was talking about welfare queens because you're not going right. to smear and what did you say? Trump was, and Trump was specifically was like, I'm not going to cut Social Security. I'm not going to cut Medicare. Like the big exactly. universal programs were like, you know, they call them third rails for a reason. Like you just don't touch them in politics. Right. Um, I, I think that the, 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 just to keep playing devil's advocate, although you guys both know that I favor uh, universal programs and full communism and all that good stuff. Um, but to keep playing devil's advocate for a second, I think that the thesis isn't that um, – Single payer once enacted, or maybe it is. I don't know. Zach Zach Beecham went completely off the rails in that piece. But I think that the the question around, or like a a more reasonable question around this, is whether 
um, campaigning on those things, uh, whether the politics around that, the, the, the political coalition that would be necessary to advance programs like single payer um, is possible given white racism against um, other poor people who would be beneficiaries of, of these programs. That's why you. Oh, right. sorry, sorry, Matt. Go. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, to me, it's like again, I just don't. I don't know if anyone. I'm genuinely puzzled, and you. I would love your insight on this, um, because you were actually you grew up in Texas, right? Yeah. So I was raised, born, raised like to very New Yorker-ish. So I definitely have a um, a certain view. I'm not. I don't see what you know. How do I say this without sounding like a total elitist? Um, <laughs> I'm in a bubble. I'm in a bubble, right? But right, yeah. I don't know I'm if from the real America. you are exactly um, <laughs> I should touch you. I should go to we should put you in a museum and uh, just kidding. OK, so um, what's funny is that no one will object to that. None of the people who because they don't care about class and he's a you're a straight white man. So you're totally fair game to for me to like turn into an anthropological study. Um, but do these people really believe it? I I can never tell, and there's probably both. Like, I can never tell if the argument that, like, like these universal programs are bad because they're unfair because they will benefit <clears throat> one rich person per however many low-income people, whether they actually think that, whether they're – basically whether they're uninformed or, or lying or both. Um, and I know so you're a very you empirical think, guy, but – are you saying do they think that they're bad as a policy matter or do they think they're bad as a political? The latter. The latter, okay. right. Do, do you think there's any truth to the allegation that I've seen in some places that the it's that the um, it would be uh, difficult or impossible to bring uh, poor and working class white people into a political coalition to advance these things because uh, of their um, sort of antipathy toward the other people who would make up that political coalition. And the, um, I think the evidence that people would uh, uh, bring to that argument is the is white working class voters having favored Trump. Yeah, so I think there are frictions right. that operate, like I said in my piece, where definitely difference does matter and push people a little bit but what we're really talking about is you're not you're not winning a hundred percent of anyone you're just pulling some people at the margin if you can bring uh two or three percent of working class whites on board game is over like you win that's right. all you have to do and it's not a huge lift and one of the other things that's been interesting from vox's post-election that is relevant to this is they've talked a lot about identity priming and I think that showed up in uh, Democracy for Realists, the book that everyone was talking about, where basically, you know, elections are driven in a lot of ways by how people think about themselves, on what axes do they define right. themselves, do they think about themselves according to their race or their religion or their economic status or whatever. And people have all sorts of different identities, and they can be activated in different ways. And so the theory is, well, Trump has helped activate some people, working class whites, along their white identity. And that's why he has been more successful than prior Republicans. But clearly, then the only alternative to that is to reactivate them back exactly. into whatever identity they were pulling up before, which in the case of Obama, I think, were sort of economic identities because Obama ran very heavily against, especially Romney, as this, like, corrupt, rich guy who steals all your jobs and, and you know, closes down your factories or whatever. Right. I guess I just see a total disconnect between the idea, everything that people cite as proof that these, these programs are not going to work, to me is evidence of the contrary. It's like, look, we have white people 
And I'm, I'm obviously, you know, this, like you guys both, especially you, Matt, know the data way better than I do. So I'm just doing, sorry, Jesse, no, I'm, I'm just doing broad brushstrokes, right? But you have angry mm-hmm. white people, some of whom went to Trump, right? Do we, right. I mean, I know, Matt, you do really important writing on the human, on the humanity of poor white people, something that a lot of liberals would contest, I think. Um, but let's say we are total classists, right? And we don't care at all about these people. And we really do, would, wouldn't care if they died because of they voted against their own interests, right? Like this narrative that we see, like, um, you know, at Daily Coast about celebrating the, the workers who are going to die because they voted against whatever, their insurance or, or mining stuff. Um, mm-hmm. If we just want, if I'm, if I'm a Clintonite and I just want to defeat Republicans, right? It so, seems so obvious. You have two choices. You have... Let someone like Donald Trump monopolize angry white people by offering them a very seductive and very um, distorted view narrative that's very simple and very appealing and activates, as you said, their white racial identity and gets them to, you know, to orient them to to hate and resent uh, Muslims and Mexicans. Right. So you have that going on. And the answer to that, to me, seems pretty straightforward. You have someone who speaks to these people says, yeah, I get that you're feeling screwed. You are screwed. Um, I resonate with you. You resonate with me. And guess what? Let's blame the banks, blame um, structural inequality, and precisely not these people. I mean, it's I can't believe it. I feel like I'm missing something because that's so obvious to me. It's so obviously the way that you fight against Trump is that way. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. The, the only way you're going to get them on board Unless you're going to become Trump somehow, which is not anyone, something anyone wants to do, is you have to activate how they feel in a different way and align their interests. And again, like I said, it's only you don't need everyone. You just need a few extra people on board. Um, so, like, if you look through Obama's um, ads in the, that he ran and in the Rust Belt in 2012, there's incredible ads where it's like Bain Capital came in and bought up my factory, and they just looted it and closed it down for no reason even though the factory was profitable and there's this one that's like i think it's called funeral and he's like we they had a oh i remember that we did is we set up a stage um they didn't tell us what it was for and then they got on the stage and told us all our jobs are gone and the factory is closing and so when i was building a stage it was like i was digging my own grave or whatever (laughs) like they were like that's what he that's what they sent to white people in the rust belt and that's how he won um, and what so, what Clinton sent to white people in the Rust Belt was Donald Trump is mean to people with special needs. Right, Donald Trump cussing at children. That was her. It was like she was activating like Maude Flanders. Uh, <laughs> that was like who she was trying to reach. Well, that, it was. I, I mean, think, that was explicitly who they were trying to reach. Yeah, and they did move the needle on that some, but um, N- not as much to offset their gained. loss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what's sad is that what I think a lot of this also comes down to like messaging as opposed to content right like obama said that he could have won a third term i think maybe that's true and it's i think a lot of that is because he's way better just like bill clinton is they're way better at selling stuff than hillary clinton um 
it almost it almost endeared Hillary to me. Like I almost appreciate how bad she is. But but even this. even she could have won with a better strategy if she had decided not to go for to sacrifice as Chuck Schumer said, sacrifice the people in you know Western Pennsylvania for and in, in order to gain basically women in, in the in the um, Philadelphia yeah. suburbs. Tr- if they had just tried a better, even if they had gone for Trump is a zillionaire who's going to take your yeah, money and all that kind of do. stuff. Exactly. I think even so, like Bernie yeah, would have won. Cool. Sure, any Democrat. Democrat would have won, and even Clinton would have won. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Sorry, Matt, what were you saying? Trump's, I mean, (laughs) Trump is like the Monopoly man type billionaire. It's really not difficult to hit him on. Just show pictures of his house, his golden elevators, golden toilet, and talk about how he screwed all the people at his casinos. And like, you know, it's not really, he's the easiest target imaginable for that kind of campaign. How hamstrung, sorry, keep going. The only thing I would caution is, I think, you know, Clinton didn't view herself as credible on that. Right. Like, that's, that's really why they didn't go for it. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Like, well, that's what no, I was going to ask. going to bring up my speeches and blah, blah, blah. Right, so. is how hamstrung was she by her own biography in that regard? Yeah, I think very. I think that affected how they made their decision because they decided that it was too risky to open herself up to, you know, you're an elite yourself, you're a grifter of the political sort, as opposed to the, you know, capitalist sort, but it's the same, it's all the same people, etc. I want to bring up um, a different class of person apart from the billionaire class who, who, like, needless to say, um, politics against them are are good. Um, But I want to bring up the um, professional class, uh, the, like, petty bourgeoisie, who I think are almost always underspoken of in the media, partly because the media are themselves (laughs) the petty bourgeoisie. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's a – I think Rich Yeselson was making the case after the election that um, it's it's all well and good for Sanders to go after the billionaires, but there are a lot of – Poor people who sort of admire the billionaires and admire Trump and and see him as somebody who's made it. Where where a, a class resentment that isn't activated very well by the Sanders ilk is the class resentment against the professionals, and that actually Trump was quite good at demonizing the bureaucrats and the media and the sort of that set. And I, I wonder what you, as somebody who um, who came to his politics in a particularly like poor and working class setting in Texas, uh, if if that resentment sort of resonates with you in the same way yeah but i i don't i, I think it's just both I, I don't think they like billionaires but not professionals i think they don't like either of them one story i could tell you on that front is when <laughs> my dad uh even to this day i think when he sends me like letters or packages or whatever and he has to put his name he'll like put his name and then a comma and then he'll put like all sorts of letters after it. <laughs> <laughs> so why? So like in place of various like titles that he yeah. could have Esquire. Right. <laughs> Esquire, PhD or whatever. Like he just, cause it's like. Cause he's like a warehouse worker. So and, just like, randomly, he's like making fun of it or yeah. he's, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> thinks, it. he thinks that, you know. <laughs> that is really funny. Stupid <laughs> that people, you know, sign their name that way. Um, and, you know, that's obviously just a grievance, basically, against professional class people. Right. Um, so, you know, just expand it and hit them, too, you know. Um, so I think that's an easy, easy thing to do. And what? how did you come to your politics, if you don't mind talking about that a little bit? I know it's personal, so we can also, um, if you don't want it, we can totally move up move on blink once no. if you're okay blink twice <laughs> if you're not it's fine I, I don't know that i have a i mean everyone tell these stories and i'm not confident in my own ability to tell it i mean 
when I was in, you know, I grew up lower class in Texas, and that probably had a big part to do with it. My dad was in a union for a long time, and then he got out the out of the union because the company got bought up, and he was really bitter about that, and he used to talk to me a lot about that. My grandfather and my uncle were also in unions, uh, and they used to tell me union stories and how much they, you know, didn't like the boss and whatever. And um, so I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. I started becoming politically conscious, I guess, when I was in high school. I was on the debate team, and we had to learn a lot about different political philosophies and that kind of thing. That's when I first started reading, you know, all sorts of things, libertarians, Marxists, whatever, to help my debating. And I was attracted more to the left side of that. So it was, you know. Because you have half. a heart and a brain. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, and also it's more fun, honestly, to, to make those arguments huh. in debate rounds and and Texas high school debate against mostly private school students that participate <laughs> in those that kinds of tournaments. So. And what do you? But, yeah, so I was like intellectual, personal. I would say probably more like book reading than it was. Just like I came out of the soil of the earth and knew that capitalism was bad. Right. And have, do you? Does your family hold similar beliefs to you? Your family members? They're, you know, they, they're kind of undeveloped, I guess. You know, like that. But like the sentiment is the same. So like, my dad voted for Nader a couple times, wow. and then he voted for Obama, and then this time. He just voted for Gary Johnson as like a protest vote because there was no like that was it on the Texas ballot. Right. And my mom, I don't think my mom ever voted until, um, you know, Carrie because she didn't like the war. Um, but for like really unwoke reasons, <laughs> like she didn't like the war because she was like, you know what? We shouldn't be spending right. all this money in Iraq helping people who don't even like us when we have all these poor people here. And you're like, uh, okay, I mean, it's good enough. That's good yeah, enough. yeah, it's like, like it's like a quarter woke. Yeah, I mean, it's woke <laughs> enough. It's certainly woker than the uh, the people who pretend to be woke and and advocated for invading a country, um, you know, destabilizing the world and and harming many many brown people and pretending that their interests are aligned with them. Um, yeah, that's a penny pincher's justice. I like that. Um, you're, I can. I, it's nice to be a Jew and say that about someone who's not Jewish. <laughs> Some reparations. Just kidding. Um, what do you think is the most important thing to do in terms of organizing, in terms of writing? Because um, you know, you're. I, I like people. I think of like you and Sarah Jaffe are are very good people who do a lot of writing about organizing. Um, and so I wanted to know your thoughts about what people should be doing moving forward and how can we kind of like I just feel like we have to do the biggest PR push that shows that this is not there's like appealing to people's class consciousness is not at all it's like the the only way we can combat racism it's not enough it's not going to get rid of racism that false uh what is it called the straw man argument um but yeah what do you think can be done kind of yeah uh, to, to advance that yeah. kind of class politics yeah well, you know, ideally you have a working class organization. That's why I was uh, in mostly did labor stuff until I got, you know, canned <laughs> after, you know, the the bad tweet. Um, so, like, <laughs> up to that point, I was like, I worked for SEIU and the machinists and the NLRB. And that is like the historical model 
things. Like, what's great about them, not only do they help you in the workplace, but also they become like a, you know, a civic thing. And you meet people and you go to meetings. And, you know, at your meetings, you're talking on the same team with all sorts of people, gay, straight, black, right. white, whatever. Yeah, and as as Judith Stein points out, being in that position of mutual interest and and co-organization that that serves to change people's attitudes and behaviors. Yeah, I mean, people's politics and attitudes form very socially. That's why one right. of the best ways to turn someone in favor of gay marriage was to like come out to them if you were you're a friend of theirs. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, I, I like my friends, you know. So, um, like. That's a big thing, um, but I don't know. I don't know how to do that anymore. Really, uh, I don't know that anyone knows how to organize people into unions in the U.S. at this point. Um, so, short of that, you just join political organizations, and hopefully, you can reach out to people. Um, so, you know, the DSA model, or I think there are others like Justice Democrats or whatever. Like, if you're really interested in this, like organizing the left wing of the Democratic Party, not with the Democratic Party right. in any way, but like separate from it, but like we're going to sort of take it over or, or hope to. Um, and then just, you know, it's just the day in, day out grind, making calls and, you know, visiting houses and going to meetings and that sort of right. thing. I mean, there seems to be a, such a purity politics, like you bringing up the idea of same-sex marriage equality, right, and how, how a way to, to turn people around on that so to speak, is uh, by coming out, right? And then people know you. They're like, oh, I like this person. This person is a human being, so I'm looking at it differently, right? Um, mm-hmm. That, I mean, the idea I feel like that some Clintonites have and some Dems have, some Libs have, is that, like, you won't... It, th- those people don't deserve to be reasoned with or spoken to because if it's not on them to reach out to these people, I'm not here yeah. for that. It's not my job to educate you. Like that right. refrain, which I kind of feel like was the Trump thing was kind of like, yeah, it may, it may be all of our jobs to educate people. Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, that to me is purity politics. Yeah, there, there's an element to that position that basically says, look, if you can't recognize that people of color are human beings just like you and deserve to be treated just like you do without being involved in an organization and where you make friends and, and inner social networks with them. If you need that in order to like want to ally with them, then you're messed up. Right. Like you're just messed up. You shouldn't need that. It's so obvious. Right. And you know, maybe you're a little more messed up than people who don't, but that's just that's still what people that's just that's just what it is right i mean i don't know what to tell you like people in the abstract were not coming around on gay marriage until their friends came out as gay and said hey i want to be married like it sucks maybe they should have but that's just reality right so the people with it or you can stand outside and cry about it yeah the, the people who who make that argument um uh under acknowledge the extent to which they themselves have had their politics formed right, socially. Totally. Like they're, they're just assuming that they are so good inside that by default, their politics is one that recognizes humanity of black people and, um, you know, or, immigrants and whatever like that, R- rather than acknowledging that they're, that they've come to their politics by being socialized into them themselves. Or you have the really scary white version of the kind of Clarence Thomas thing, right? Where you have someone who is like, look, I grew up in a racist 
household. I grew up in a racist neighborhood, and I realized I was able to realize that I was being played by this divisive thing, and I was I didn't need someone to tell me. I, I pulled up, myself up yeah, by my bootstraps. My ideological, like my politically woke <laughs> straps, right? I, I woke myself up with my. But it's like again, that is exception. Like, sorry, I, I don't believe in that as a. I neither believe in that in a moral or philosophical uh, level, but it's also not political organizing. Again, I don't care. Look, you can call these people whatever you want to call them, Neanderthals, backwards. I'll disagree with you, but I don't particularly care about that. You should have the wherewithal to realize that the option is like crapping on these people and calling them unwoke and problematic and then not having them vote yes on same-sex marriage. Or, right. I mean, it's just like it seems like such a privileged position from people who claim yeah. to hate privilege. I mean, if, if you really care about helping the people you care about helping, you'll do what it takes. Exactly. You know? Right. So. We have to finish now because we have another show coming in, but we would love to have you on again. Um, Matt Brunig, check him out on Medium. And what's your Twitter handle again? Is it just Matt Brunig? Yeah, that's it. Um, B-R-U-E-N-I-G. And um, also, guys, our next live show is going to be on April 12th. That's Wednesday, April 12th, uh, live taping in front of an audience, uh, 7 p.m. And our guest will be the historian Matt Carp. Uh, so make sure you come to that. And Matt, we definitely want to have you on. Matt Brunig, we want to have you on again. And thank you so much. Yeah, See you guys next week. Bye.